Uh, you'll note uh, on the overhead, maybe, the outline. There we go. Thank you. Uh, the theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God, uh, the gospel of God. And we're in that section, Justification by Grace Through Faith, chapter 3 through uh, 321 through 521. Well, after the introductory prologue to the letter, uh, the book of Romans systematically shows that all are under the condemnation of sin. There, there is no exception. All have sinned. And there is none righteous, Paul says, Romans 3.10. No, not one. Well, Paul then shows that God has provided a way for people to be right with him through Jesus Christ. And he uses two theological words in relationship to Jesus Christ. He is our redemption. Uh, to redeem means to buy back or to purchase with a price. Jesus purchased us with his blood. He's our redemption. And then he's our propitiation. That's a $50 word that means satisfaction. Uh, he satisfied God's wrath. Uh, God says, it's enough. I accept that payment. It appeases me. I'm pleased with it. I accept it. So Jesus is our redemption, and he is our propitiation. And this is true uh, for all those who believe in him. Paul emphasizes that justification is by faith alone in Romans 3, 21 through 33. And then in Romans 4... He illustrates this from the life of Abraham. And then at the end of Romans 4, he applies the truth of justification by faith alone to the believer's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved just by faith, just like Abraham. The nature of saving faith is the same in all eras, which is why Abraham is called the father of all those who believe, the spiritual father of all those who believe. So Abraham is a prototype of what constitutes a saving faith. Well, at the end of Romans 4, as I say, Paul applies the truth of justification by faith alone to the person of Christ who was delivered up because of our offenses and raised again because of our justification. And that's where we pick up our study this morning. Uh, note that what Paul said at the end of Romans 4 now continues his thought into chapter 5. Uh, so just by way of review, what we saw last week, uh, in, from the divine side, justification is provided through the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, and then Romans 4.25 says, uh, of Christ, who was delivered up because of our offenses, raised because of our justification. But from the human side, justification is received by faith alone. And that's where we are today. Romans 5.1 continues the thought, therefore, tying back to what he has just said, uh, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the last word in chapter 4 was justification, which means to declare and treat as righteous. Having established justification is by faith alone, Paul now builds on what this means for the believer, as seen here in chapter 5. Paul described justification by faith alone as the condition of blessedness, Romans 4, 6. And it's as if Paul now in chapter 5 enlarges on what this blessedness involves. We pick it up, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As I've said, therefore ties back to what has been said. And it's this idea here. The word therefore means as a result or for that reason. 
It's the major hinge word that ties everything he is about to say with what he has just said concerning justification by faith alone as illustrated in the life of Abraham. This really has been the driving theme all the way through this whole section from 321 through chapter 4. Based on the truth of justification by faith, we now see the following benefits or blessings that flow from it, which are now developed. Really, this whole paragraph of chapter 5, 1 through 11, ties with that justification by faith theme that we have seen in chapter 4. Well, on the basis of justification by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a textual variant which would make the text read, let us have peace with God versus we have peace with God. Almost all scholars agree the flow of thought in this context uh, means that the sense should be we have peace with God. As unbelievers, we, are in, we were in a position of enmity and hostility towards God. As Paul clearly shows in verse 10, Lord willing, we'll get there next week. But in the act of saving faith, we are justified. And in that position of now being justified, we have peace with God. Justification is a legal word. It's a legal declaration. As a judge would pronounce, I declare you right or righteous. So that's the idea of justification. It's a legal pronouncement. Peace is more a relational word, speaking to the resultant nature of the relationship. We have now been reconciled to God. We are no longer in a hostile relationship in which the wrath of God is hovering over us. And it is hovering over all unbelievers, as we see in John 3.36. But now as believers, we have peace with God. All is now well between the believer in God and God. So if I would say to you this morning, how is it with you and God? Well, as a believer, you could say, I have a shalom, or I have a peace relationship with God. The idea of peace is uh, all is well. All is well. As those who now have peace with God, Paul opens a letter with peace from God, Romans 1.7. Peace now defines the believer's relationship with God. And this was all made possible, he says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This is how he made peace, through the blood of his cross. In Ephesians 2.14, Paul writes that Jesus himself is our peace. This is why Christ came to earth, to make it possible for people to have a peace relationship with God. And this is where the angels come in, as they announced the birth of Christ, as we find in Luke 2.14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This would now be possible through the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have it through him. Romans 5.1 emphasizes peace with God. Based on the, and based on the therefore of the verse, this ties back to the death of Christ for our offenses and his resurrection for our justification as seen in 425. 
This is the basis of our peace relationship with God. I want you to note here in Romans 5.1, it does not speak of the peace of God, but rather peace with God. He is not here in Romans 5.1 speaking of a subjective feeling, but rather to the objective fact that the believer is no longer at enmity with God. Whether there are feelings or not, peace with God is the factual status of the true believer's relationship with God. And by the way, being in a peace relationship with God is the exact opposite of being under the wrath of God. Whether the believer feels like it or not, their position of peace with God is real and unchanging. You see, it's not based on our feelings. Rather, it's based on our faith in Jesus. On the other hand, the unbeliever who claims to have peace is either lying or self-deceived. And there are many people in that category. Well, I'm not at enmity with God. Yeah, how you been living? Is God the center of your universe or is it self? Uh, really betrays where you're really at. And there are so many deceivers who claim to have a relationship with God but really want nothing to do with Jesus. You know, Isaiah 48, 22 is very clear. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. No real peace. You know, I was raised in a Christian home. I knew about Jesus ever since I was a little boy. And yet I really didn't have any peace. I'd go out and get so drunk, and I'd come home at night. And this is when, not when I was a little boy, but I was a little older. <laughs> <laughs> But I would commonly say, Lord, forgive me for everything I did tonight. I didn't have peace. I just wasn't sure where my final destiny was going to be. See, I, I was really kind of trying to live a double life. Uh, and, and a double life is, in, is, is not genuine. That, that's where I was in those days. But uh, the only place to find real peace is through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the Prince of Peace. Now, as believers who are in a peace relationship with God, as a matter of positional status, God does also want us to experience the peace of God in our walk, which happens in conjunction with prayer, as we see in Philippians chapter 4. So note the difference here. Our position is unchanging. I'm talking to believers now. Uh, we have peace with God, and that, that never changes. We're in a right relationship with God, and when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it's finished, and that settles it forever. We are forever in a right relationship with God. But in our practice, uh, we have fluctuation. Uh, we don't always have the peace of God in our experience. We are to cast our cares upon God because he cares for us. And as we come to God and pour out our hearts in prayer, then he gives us that peace of God. But that's not to be confused with our position of peace with God. One time, a very zealous but young and green Bible student who was preparing to go into the ministry visited a dear old saint who was on her deathbed. And during the visit, the young student said to the elderly lady, don't you think it would be wise for you to make peace with God well, the elderly lady responded, no, which in turn startled the young student. He could not understand why she 
would not want to make peace with God. So she said to him, quote, I do not have to make peace with God. The Lord Jesus Christ made peace with God on my behalf. So I already have peace with God because of my faith in Jesus. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, this dear elderly saint had it right. She understood that relationship with God depends on what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, not on what we do. If it depended on us, we could never have peace with God. The Bible says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They're stained with sin. We need a Savior. God's way is by faith and not by our works. Being justified by faith, we now have peace with God on what basis? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a church. It's not rituals. It's not your good life or good work. None of this will bring you into a peace relationship with God. It's what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. And then his resurrection. Verse 2. We have peace with God. But verse 2 continues. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Everything is on the basis of faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of our faith, we have peace with God through Jesus, and we also have access into this grace in which we stand. Now, the word access has the idea of introduction to, or privilege of approach, concerning a superior uh, this word access is found only two other times in the New Testament. It's found in Ephesians 2.18 and again in Ephesians 3.12. In Ephesians 2.18, the emphasis is that through Christ we have access to the Father. And then in 3.12, the emphasis is that through Christ we have access through faith in him. The idea of access goes further than to be declared righteous and being at peace. You see, a king might pardon a subject and be on peaceable terms with a former rebel, but that did not mean that this person had the right to come into the king's presence, didn't have the right of access. Access into this grace is really access to God himself and all the intimate blessings that go with that relationship. The idea of privilege of approach is brought out in the book of Esther, in the Old Testament. We find there that no one could approach the king unless invited. If one showed up in the inner court of the king, the king could either stretch out his golden scepter, signifying favor, and that you could come into his presence and speak, or you would be let out to die. Well, in effect, because of Christ, God is now permanently holding out the golden scepter of favor to believers. Christ has introduced us and brought us into this sphere of grace. Through Jesus, we have come to faith and now have the privilege to come right into the very presence of God. You know what happened when Jesus died, right? It is finished, he said on the cross. And what happened in the temple? The veil was torn from top to bottom, showing that access into the Holy of Holies is now available through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We are now intimate with God. 
This is indeed a sphere of grace, meaning favor. This is the realm of privileged favor, to be right in the very intimate presence of God. Well, even though here in Romans 5, 2, the words by faith are really not found in the older manuscripts, the idea does carry through from verse 1. As seen in Romans 4, 16, faith is in accordance with grace. The flow of thought is that we have access by faith into this grace. Now, it is true that we are saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8. But it's also true that being justified by faith, we now enter into this position of grace in which we stand. Thus, faith ushers in a whole host of grace, benefits, and blessings. Grace literally means unmerited favor. But I think that's a little weak. It's a little weak. I agree with the Holman Christian Study Bible uh, where they say a better New Testament definition of charis, which is the the Greek word for grace, would be unmerited favor toward an enemy. Grace toward one who has forfeited any claim on God's favor because of sin and who deserves the opposite. God's judgment. Yeah, that's the idea of grace. Not merely unmerited favor, but unmerited favor towards an enemy who really deserves hostility. Well, on the, on the basis of our faith, Christ has now ushered us into a standing of grace before God. We now have a standing in favor. We stand there. It's a grace standing, and it's a permanent standing. This is our position forever. We are trophies of grace, and we stand in grace forever. David Gazik says, our access into the standing of grace is only by faith. And through Jesus, we cannot work ourselves into this standing. John 1.16 says of believers, of his fullness we have all received. And grace upon grace, we now stand in the favor of God. Our whole life is flavored by his grace. Paul's consistent opening line in his letters to God's people is, grace to you from God. Stand is in the perfect tense, indicating completed action with continuing results. As believers, we stand in grace, and we will stand there forever. And in this position, what do we do? Well, we have a little celebration. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We stand in grace, and the best is yet to be. The word rejoice is sometimes translated as glory or boast, it's the idea of exultant rejoicing so as to shout about it. It's jubilation. One old preacher said, peace is joy resting. Joy is peace dancing. This is dancing joy. In our sin, we fall short of the glory of God. But in justification, we exult in the glory of God, the hope of the coming glory of God that we will share. And that's something to celebrate. It's something to get excited about. We as believers in the sphere of grace have the hope, the hope of God's glory. Now, the word hope in the New Testament is used in a different way than the way we uh, use the word hope. We hope it will rain, not snow. We, but we don't know that. 
It's a hope so hope. But uh, we as believers have a no so hope. Uh, the hope word hope in the New Testament is a certain expectation that God will bring to pass in the future what he has promised. That's the idea. Our future is a no so hope. We know what the future holds. Glory is up ahead. We are headed for the glory land where we will not just share in an experience of glory, but we will actually share in the very glory of God. Romans 8, 17 says, And if children, which we are, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We share in all that belongs to Jesus. We cannot begin to imagine the grace that has been poured out on us. If indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. No, there is a past, present, and future aspect to the blessedness of where believers stand. In terms of past, we have been justified by faith. In terms of the present, this grace in which we stand. And the future, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So faith has ushered in peace, grace, joy, hope, and glory. What an amazing inheritance the saints have. Now, we had a dear old saint in our church for many years. And of course, I'm going on 39 years in February. I think it's 39. Who lose track after a while? But, but uh, Brother Faye Green was here for years. And he often talked with me about the glory land almost in reverent tones. He would talk about the glory land. And we, have, we still sing it, uh, just over in the glory land. That's where Brother Faye is at now. Uh, just over in the glory land, I'll join the happy angel band. Just over in the glory land, there with the mighty host I'll stand. Just over in the glory land. Oh my, how we exult in this reality. It's our hope. It's our glorious hope. But what about the here and now, which is not always so glorious? What about the afflictions of God's people and what we have to go through on our way to the glory land? Well, Paul continues. Verse 3, not only that, not only do we have the hope of the glory of God, but... Uh, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. We have the hope of glory, but in the meantime, we are in process. And this process, while often painful, also serves to build hope. Not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, we also glory in tribulations. You see, the word rejoice in verse 2 is the very same Greek word translated glory here in verse 3. Now, we can understand, right, why we would rejoice in coming glory, but how can it be that we would rejoice or glory in present tribulations? You know what? That's not normal, it's not natural. See, I can't wait for more tribulations to come so I can rejoice a little more. No, that's just not normal or natural. Nobody wants bad times. I'm not praying for bad times. Oh, Lord, send us bad times. I don't pray that way. Do you? You shouldn't. 
<laughs> Pray for the will of God. But uh, note what Paul goes on to say. Did you catch that little word? Knowing, knowing. It's because of what we know about what we're going through that we can rejoice in it. Not that we rejoice in the afflictions themselves, the tribulations themselves, but we know that God is using it. We are able to bring glory to, to God and give glory in tribulations because we have come to know that God is using them for a good purpose. The word tribulations is literally pressures, the squeeze. It's used of a press that was used to squeeze fluid from grapes or olives. In view here are the pressures of life that come from living a life of faith. We're talking about believers here. These tribulations that relate to our life in particular as believers refers to sufferings or afflictions related to living in a hostile world that's in rebellion against God. Paul told uh, the saints in Acts 14.22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, it says, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, we must through many tribulations, same word, must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. On our way to the kingdom, there's lots of tribulations along the way. A person of faith can expect pressures to follow. We should expect it. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. What's this? I'm expecting a prosperity gospel. No, no, no. You shouldn't think in those terms. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. Knowing that the Lord has a purpose for the tribulations that come into our lives as believers makes all the difference. We can now approach it with a whole different attitude. Indeed, we can even glory in tribulations. One believer was known to say when a new challenge or difficulty came into their life, here we grow again. Isn't that true? Yeah, you can say that knowing God's at work. James deals with this. James chapter 1. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, if you stop right there, that's a problem. Narcissist or something bad. I mean, this is some kind of mental problem. But he continues, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. God is at work. When Paul was given a thorn in the flesh, it troubled him greatly, and he begged the Lord three times to remove it. But once he learned that it had a greater spiritual purpose in his life, it changed his whole thinking. Notice what he went on to say then. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, God's power, the inner power related to how I respond to this with a spirit-filled attitude comes to the fore. 
Well, if Christ could use these pressures, then Paul was all about it. Indeed, he said he would boast or glory in these things. The apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus, Acts 5.41. Paul told the Philippians that they had been granted or privileged to suffer for Christ's sake. Tribulations have a refining effect in our lives. They serve to humble, purify, strengthen us spiritually. And they are really a proving reality. Alva McLean says this, quote, Here is a principle by which you can discover the difference between a true child of God and one who is just a professed child of God. It is by the effect that tribulation has on him. In the life of a true child of God, tribulation brings him closer to God, makes him steadfast and patient. There's another sort of person. Troubles come into the life, and instead of bringing him close to God, tribulation makes him hard. You know, Jesus brought this out in his parable in Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower and the soils. These are likewise the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. I mean, they're so excited. You think you have a true convert? They're, wow, this is wonderful. Except Jesus. But it's stony ground. They have no root. Zero. No root in themselves. So they endure only for a time afterward. When tribulation or persecution arises, for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. The word tribulation here in Mark 4.17 is the very same word used in Romans 5.3. Note this person in Mark 4 immediately makes a joyous profession, but then when the testing tribulation comes, they just as quickly fall away because in truth they were never real. It never really penetrated their heart. Yeah, they had an emotional experience, but it was never real. The word never really penetrated their hearts. They were merely bogus professors. The real proof of who is genuine and who is not is in their response to tribulations. True believers can expect to be tried, tested, and proved. It just goes with the turf. We should expect it. What did Jesus say? Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 16, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. But where do we have our peace? It's in Jesus, not in our circumstances. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have it, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Someone has said a Christian is someone who is, quote, absurdly happy, filled with irrational love for everyone, and is always in trouble. <laughs> or maybe we should say this uh, is indicative of spirit-filled believers. Genuine believers come through tribulations, and those tribulations produce perseverance. The word perseverance means steadfastness or endurance. You know, have you heard this? Whatever doesn't kill you is uh, good for you? I think that needs clarification. But it is true that tribulations have a spiritual purpose for the believer. And they are ultimately good for you in the sense that they make you stronger. They produce perseverance. Perseverance literally means to bear up under you know, if you go on a regiment where you start lifting weights, you probably don't start with a really serious, heavy amount. You start small. 
and you build up your strength. This is true in the walk of faith as well. It builds perseverance. This is perseverance of the saints, and true faith continues. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. Now the just shall live by faith as a way of life. If anyone draws back, you know, abandons the faith, my soul has no pleasure in him. But he says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, damnation, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We glory in tribulations because they prove that our faith is real. And we are strengthened in the process. The reality of our faith is seen in the tribulations produce endurance. They make us stronger, enabling us to keep on keeping on. No pain, no gain. Things actually get harder, by the way, as, as you go along in, in your walk of faith. You know, as you get older, things get harder. But this whole process is God at work putting the final touches on his workmanship. And in that we can rejoice. It's not like we just go through these things for nothing. We know they're serving a greater purpose. You know, God didn't start out by calling Abraham to offer up his son as an offering. That's way, way down the road in, in Abraham's faith story. There were all kinds of challenges, smaller challenges, that led up to this ultimate test of faith. But through it all, including some stumbles along the way, Abraham persisted in his faith. And along the way, he grew ever stronger in his faith. That's the pattern. And then perseverance produces character. Uh, what we go through molds and shapes our character. Uh, learning to live with pressure builds character. The word character is the idea of proven character. And character is the idea of consistency. You know, the whole idea in our Christian walk is to now live consistently with who we are in Christ. That's the great challenge for all of us, right? We want to be consistent with who we now are as God's children. That's the challenge. And God is at work through tribulations and perseverance to build character, proven character. The word character belongs to a family of words related to the refining process, such as when metals were refined and the dross removed. As we go through tribulations, it makes us stronger, and we come through refined. Is that not what Job said? Yeah, that's what he said. Job 23.10, he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Expositor said, when we stand in the presence of God, all material possessions will be left behind. But all that we have gained by way of spiritual advance will be retained. This progress is a testimony to God, so it rightly has a place in glory. Well, that's a good thought. And character, guess what? It produces hope. Here we see the full circle of hope. As believers who stand in grace, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then as we go through tribulations, that build endurance, which builds character, this in turn strengthens our hope. It strengthens our hope because we see God at work in our lives. Little by little, he strengthens and molds us. 
which further builds hope that what he has promised for the future concerning the glory that is yet to come will also be brought to pass. John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but still I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Who as a true believer cannot say this? I'm not what I hope to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. That was kind of weak. We could really have a resounding amen on that one. As true believers, we have been changed, and we are being changed. And this reality fosters hope in our hearts that what God has started, he will complete. Is this not a great memory verse? Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, going to drop you before he gets to the end zone. No, no, no. No, no. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. There's an ongoing process that will be brought to completion. This is our hope. And in that process, it builds hope because we see God at work to that end. Believers are little by little being transformed, as the Bible says, from glory to glory, from one level of glory to another level of glory, one level of Christ-likeness to another level of Christ-likeness. And as we see God strengthening and refining us, it reinforces the hope for glory that is yet to be. And one day this hope will be fully realized because the Bible says when we see Jesus, we shall be like him. Well, as we rejoice in the hope of the glory we also rejoice that God is currently at work in our lives, which strengthens our hope. The certain expectation that God will indeed bring us to fully share in his glory. Verse 5. But hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Biblical hope, and I emphasize biblical, biblical hope does not disappoint. Now, worldly hope does disappoint. You hope your taxes will go down. You're probably going to be disappointed in that hope. But a biblical hope is a certain expectation. And being certain about the promises of God never disappoints. Because God always fulfills his promise. What God says he does, there is total consistency with God. Years ago, there was a certain salesman on TV, and his line was always this. When you get here, you will find everything to be exactly as I said. I always wanted to show up just to see if that was true. But with God, that is the way it is. Paul emphasizes this in 2 Corinthians. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Hope is never disappointed. It's never left unfulfilled. It never leaves a person humiliated and in shame for having put their stock in the promises of God. Say, I'm so sorry. I should have never believed God. He just didn't come through. Never, never, never is that true. I like Spurgeon at this point where he says, I have never heard a dying believer regret that he was a Christian. I come to the end of the line, I've had this hope, I'm really disappointed. No, 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 no. 
Hope never disappoints. One will never be sorry for having their hope in God. God always comes through. And why does hope not disappoint? Well, he says here, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Yes, in the midst of afflictions, we have the hope of coming glory. And in the midst of those afflictions, we also have the love of God buoying us up. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and his specialized ministries immediately becomes a living reality in your heart. This is one of those things the unbelievers say, prove it! You know, it's kind of difficult to prove uh, intangible, abstract things. We're talking a spiritual realm that we as believers know is true. The unbeliever, I don't believe it. Well, yeah, you can't see because you don't believe. When you have hope in God, the Holy Spirit then impresses the love of God upon your heart. This is a spiritual reality. It's a subjective reality, but it's very real, experienced by those who truly know the Lord. You see, the Holy Spirit is a real person, and he has come to live inside all believers who are now said to be the temple of God. According to Galatians 3.2, we receive the Spirit by the hearing of faith. When we put our faith in Jesus, the Spirit comes to live inside us. The moment we come to faith, we are justified, we are declared righteous, and the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. From then on, as God's people, we are the temple of the living God, as the Bible says. Living, emphasizing, moving, real. He works. Romans 8 9, we'll get to this, Lord willing, at some point. Romans 8 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. This is the line of demarcation between the believer and the unbeliever. We have the Holy Spirit. And one of the Spirit's special ministries is that of working assurance in the hearts of believers. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. There's a spiritual reality going on inside of us. And what does he bear witness? That we are the children of God. I love that ministry of the Spirit. 1 John 5, 10, he who believes in the Son of God has a witness in himself. It's the Holy Spirit's witness. The ministry of the Spirit, as I say, is hard to prove because it's personal, subjective, spiritual, and abstract. And yet it's very real. Paul spoke of a heart-changing, life-changing ministry, which is, quote, in demonstration of the spirit and power, contrary to human wisdom, 1 Corinthians 2. And yet it's very real. Paul speaks of the things of the spirit, which are to the natural, that is the unsaved person, foolishness, because they are perceived spiritually by the Holy Spirit. You can't make sense of this just on your, with your own natural ability. It requires the Holy Spirit. The subjective experience of the love of God in the hearts of believers is one of those realities. It's a spiritual reality. And notice the love of God has been poured out. It doesn't come as a trickle. 
but rather is poured out in abundance. This is not talking about our love for God, but rather God's love for us. As the next few verses in 5, 6 through 10 clearly indicate. The word love here is the Greek word agape. It's the intense word for love, commonly used in reference to God's love. Now, there are two aspects of knowing the love of God. Both are in the greater context here. We're just going to talk about the one aspect this morning here, but uh, there are really uh, two aspects uh, by which we know the love of God. There is a subjective, abstract reality related to the heart. It's an inward spiritual reality. That's what we're talking about here this morning. But then there is the objective, historical reality of Christ dying for our sins in fulfillment of prophecy. And that's where he goes on in our study next week. But really, these go together and together provide a powerful assurance to the heart. As believers, we have the blessed assurance of our future destiny, which is based on God's love as objectively demonstrated in the death of Christ and which is subjectively revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit works in our heart and assures us of God's great love as demonstrated in the cross work of Jesus. No matter what we're going through involving the tribulations of life, we continually have the assuring and strengthening ministry of the Spirit in our hearts. Well, Romans 5, 5 is the first occurrence in the letter of the Holy Spirit, and it's also the first mention of God's love. And appropriately, they are linked. The chief fruit of the Spirit is love. But again, the emphasis here is on God's love for us and the Spirit's ministry of applying that truth to our hearts. In the passage, we really have a triune or trifecta uh, emphasis here on faith, hope, and love, justified by faith, verse 1. Hope, three times, verse 2, verse 4, and verse 5, and then the love of God in verse 5. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul famously said, now abides faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, I once heard uh, Pastor Erwin Lutzer tell this story. He was in Washington, D.C. for some reason. And uh, this took place back in the days of one of the Bushes was president. I forget which one he said. So it's been some time back. But Erwin said, and of course he was, you know, Erwin Lutzer, longtime pastor, Moody, Moody Church in Chicago. But Erwin said when he was there that a friend of his who happened to be a secret servant agent asked him if he would like to see the Oval Office in the White House. And Erwin said, a farm boy from Canada like me would never say no to that. Well, the next day they met to go to the Capitol, to the White House. And Erwin said as they came to the White House, there was a regiment of soldiers standing guard. But when they approached... They saw the security guard, and they said, oh, you're with him? Go on in. And he said there was yet another checkpoint as they got further into the White House. And when the guard saw the security agent, the Secret Service agent, they said, oh, you're with him? Go on in. And then they came to the hallway that led to the Oval Office, and yet again there was a, a guard standing there. But when he saw that security agent, he said, Oh, you're with him? Go on in. 
Now, let me use my sanctified imagination with you. This is not an inspired illustration. (laughs) But when you put your faith in Christ, you are immediately joined to Christ. You're in Christ. It's a relational emphasis. The devil seeks to accuse you, and he works hard at this. Night and day, the Bible says. But Jesus is there with you, and he says, come on in boldly to the throne of grace. And then imagine when you die. As Jesus has promised, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He takes you to the first heaven. And there you are met with a glorious band of angels. But as they see Jesus with you, they say, oh, you're with him? Go on in. And then as you enter the realm of the second heaven, you are met with yet another band of angels. But when they see you are with Jesus, they say, oh, you're with him. Go on in. And finally, you come to the third heaven where God dwells in unapproachable light and suddenly a wave of unworthiness floods over your soul. But as you draw near, the seraphim angels who cry out, holy, 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 say to you, Oh, you're with him. Come on in. How amazing is the truth of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, which introduces us to the realm of grace in which we stand, including every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. When you walk through the door of faith, it's as if Jesus introduces you into a grace sphere in which God the Father says, come on in to all the blessings I have prepared for those in Christ. The last invitation of the Bible is a threefold invitation to come, 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 come. We come by faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And when we do, Jesus brings us into all the blessings of God. This is where we as believers stand in grace. So let me ask you this morning, where do you stand? Jesus alone is the door. We must enter by him. There is no other way. A church is not the door. A clergy person is not the door. Sacraments are not the the door. Baptism is not the door. Christ himself is the door. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus invites, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come. Let's stand and have our closing song.